Welcome back to our Bible study on the book of Ephesians. We're glad that you could join us as we continue looking at this very important letter um, that we believe was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Ephesus, a very important place uh, during, um, during this time and in the history of the, the New Testament church. And we see here encouragement um, that, and I, and I want to remind you of this because it's very important, it, it was written for us, but it was not written to us, okay? So we always want to bear in mind what the context was of the writing so that we can truly understand the intent of the author and apply that to ourselves. Sometimes we have a bad habit of reading ourselves back into the text, looking back at, at what was said thousands of years ago and trying to place ourselves in there or make it apply to today's situation. We have to be careful doing that. One of the areas where we're going to see that that is a bit of a challenge is coming up uh, toward the end of chapter 5 or about the midway point of chapter 5. But we are going to begin chapter 5 today and we're going to cover that first half of it. But I want to dedicate some really uh, in, in focused time on the latter part. So I don't want to try to squeeze that in at the end. So that'll be in the next lesson where we go into verses 22 and following. But chapter 5, and again, remember, the chapter headings, the chapter divisions, the verses, that's all done by man as we did our translating and compiling of Scripture to help us have a better um, means of referencing these materials. And uh, so we have to try to push everything together and try to make this a cohesive, flowing thing. And so even though we're beginning at a chapter break, let's back up a little bit and look what Paul was talking about. Remember last time he was saying that you have to walk the same way you talk, that because of what Jesus did, because of your faith in Jesus, that ought to change you. That ought to change the way you behave and the choices you make and the way you, you live your life. And he admonishes them in verse 32 of chapter 4 to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Then he says at the beginning of verse 5, therefore, now what is this in reference to? Well, it's he's talking about all the reasons that you should be living differently. You should stand out as being different from the world because of Jesus Christ. And this theme that because Jesus did something for you, then now you have a responsibility to one another is very clear here. So he says, therefore, be imitators of God. Look like God. That's what he means. Look like the Son. Look like the Father. Look like that which you say you believe in. So if you are a Christian, if you have faith in Jesus Christ that saves you, if, if you have been rescued from the bonds of sin, then that ought to change the way you look at life. It ought to change the choices you make. And he says, so be imitators of God. Because he ends with, just as God in Christ also forgave you, just as, as God forgave you through Christ, that, that means that you should show kindness to others. And so we should be imitators of God. We should look like what we're following as beloved children. So, so he likens it to children. Um, when we're growing up, we all, if you, if you had a, a, a father that was special to you, not everybody had, had good experiences with fathers. I understand that. But, uh, but some of us did. And when you're little, and maybe you've seen this with your kids if you have them, there comes a point where they see your shoes sitting there in the floor and they put your shoes on, and they walk around, and they say, look, I'm daddy, I'm daddy. And uh, they want to be like you. They want to be like you. We are to have the same attitude. 
that we want to do the things that our God does. We want to look the way our Father looks. We want to act the way our Father acts. And how does he act? With kindness, with love, with mercy, with patience. Let us do those things as well. Uh, So he says, be imitators of God as beloved children. So be like a child. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you. So here we go, the connection again. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. There is this idea when we see sacrifices in the Old Testament that when they're making a burnt offering, that the smoke was coming up and it was, it was, it was ascending to the Father and it was an, a pleasing aroma. It was a fragrance. That was the offering. What we were what we were giving him as a, as a fragrance and aroma, and he says, "You, Jesus did that. Jesus died on the cross, which was his altar, and that that uh, the, in in the figurative way, the fragrance, that aroma, that sacrifice was pleasing to God, and it gave you salvation." Verse three, but immorality, or any impurity or greed, must not even be named among you. As it is proper among saints, as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So again, he talks about how we live, how our speech and how our actions reflect the Father that we say that we belong to or who we are from. As children of God, we shouldn't have any impurity. That shouldn't be even named among you. There shouldn't even be anybody who's accused of anything among you. Um, and so uh, that, that he says is proper for the, sa- the saints. And he talks about the, the filthiness of speech and silly talk and coarse jesting. Um, and so, yes, we want to reflect the purity of God. Uh, we don't want to be guilty of tearing down with our words, destroying things with our words. Um, silly talk, this is idle talk. This is vain words. These are things that serve no purpose. These are things that serve not to edify, but to destroy. And and Paul says, have none of that. That's not a part of your life anymore. You're not going to do this anymore because you're a Christian. Uh, rather, your mouth, your words should be used for, for thanks, for gratitude, for love, for speaking truth, for encouragement and building up. Um. Verse 5, for this you know with certainty that no immoral, impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Those who do not walk in this way, they, now let, let's, let's clarify here because we talk a lot about salvation by, by grace through faith um, and that it's not merit-based, it's not works-based. And again, sometimes it's really hard to find that dividing line because we are often called to a certain standard of obedience in Scripture. So what does that mean? Well, first and foremost, that obedience is not what saves you, all right? So there's no contradiction here. That obedience doesn't save you. That obedience is the result of you being saved. It's the gratitude of your salvation. It's the response to the grace of God that comes through Jesus Christ. And so he says, people who live this way who speak this way and act this way, they have no place in the kingdom. They have no inheritance. Does that mean that those who disobey or who who sin are going to be kicked out? They're going to lose their salvation? Well, we can certainly abandon our salvation. We can certainly turn from God and choose not to be a part. We can remove ourselves from the family. 
we can disown the family. Um, that's possible. I think what Paul's talking about here is he's saying it's it's about the evidence. We know, based on how people behave, um, if they are living according to the Spirit, if they're living according to God's will. We can tell. That's an outward evidence of the heart. And he's saying the people you see that act immorally, the people you see that slander, the people you see that are idolaters or impure or covetous, all these things, um, they're not showing that they have evidence of a heart that's been transformed by the grace of God. So why are you acting like them? We know we've seen worldly people. We've encountered worldly people um, who choose to live according to their own will. And we know from observing them that their heart has not been fixed upon God. We claim that ours has been because we have called on the name of Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism that his blood would cover our sin and that we would be saved. Then why are you still living like you're not? That's Paul's question. If you know that people that live that way, they don't have an inheritance, they're not a part of the family, why would you act like someone who's not a part of the family? You need to act like you're part of the family. If you're going to carry that name, you need to carry it uh, with, a, with a sense of seriousness. That's a, that's a title you bear. So this is not, hey, if you mess up, you're kicked out. This is how you live is evidence of what's in your heart. And those who evidence that God is not in their heart are not a part of the family. If you have God in your heart, if you're clothed in the blood of Jesus Christ, then it ought to change the way you act. That, that's, that's, the, that's the insistence of this passage. All right, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words. There we go again. There's a lot in here that Paul talks about with words. Uh, don't let empty words deceive you. Don't be someone who has silly, idle words on their tongue or insulting or harmful words. He says, don't, don't let people come along and with their words throw you off course. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Okay. He, he said, now again, we got to go to the context here. If Ephesus was a place that was very large, very large city, very cosmopolitan, a port city, lots of different cultures and people and faiths and religions coming in and out. And there were often those that would come. Remember, they didn't have this. They didn't have what we have. They had letters, they had scripture they had collected that they passed around. But this, this place to go and to be directed toward Christ didn't exist. It was hard to come by. And people would come along and say, oh, uh, Jesus wasn't the Messiah. I am the Messiah or whatever. They, you know, they, would, they would preach a different gospel or Jesus wasn't really the son of God. He was a prophet, but he wasn't the son of God. Here And, they, and there, were, there were groups that um, made sexual immorality a part of their worship, that made idol uh, worship a part of their expression to God, that would deceive and would uh, infiltrate and destroy Christians. And he's saying, don't let those people throw you off. Don't let those people um, come and, and deceive you. He says, God's going to take care of them. God's going to take care of those people. And his wrath will come on the sons of disobedience. He's referring to the deceivers. He's referring to the dividers. Therefore, though, verse 7, do not be partakers with them. Don't get involved with them. Because you used to be like them. 
That's what Paul says. You used to be in darkness. You used to be sinful. You used to be idolaters and all of these terrible things, but you gave it up. You chose the light. You chose Christ. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't regress. So much of New Testament writing, whether it's Paul or John, but they're the two that do it the most, talk a lot about not turning back. Move forward in your faith. You used to be this, but you're not anymore, so don't go back to it. Why would you make that mistake again? Um, he says, walk as children of light. Remember, this image of children is present here. That, that They are imitators of God. They are imitators of the Father. So be, be like children of light. And then he says in verse 9, For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. When we talk about fruit in Scripture, we read about the fruit of the Spirit and those kinds of things, or the people who bear a certain fruit. This means the results, the results of actions, the, the thing that carries on from us. The fruit of the light, that is the evidence of the light, consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. So if you reject the deceitful words, the empty words, the idols, and the debauchery, and the darkness, you come into the light. And if you are imitators of God, then you will bear the fruit of light. And that fruit is the goodness, and it is the righteousness, and it is the truth. Verse 10, trying to learn what is pleasing to God. That's an interesting call to action, trying to learn what is pleasing to God. I think what's implicit in that verse is that we're not always going to get it right. We're going to sometimes make mistakes. Now, does that mean God is, is trying to deceive us, confuse us, or trick us? No, no. But we have to learn. We have to learn what's good sometimes. We have to learn what's pleasing. God can say it all day long, but it's it's the experiential side of life that, that uh, informs us. So we are constantly trying to learn what's pleasing to God. Even though he makes it plain, uh, we, we're still trying to, to learn. We're trying to discern in this life that the choices we make be the ones that are, are the most beneficial to the kingdom. And that's okay. It's just like children. Again, this analogy works so well here in Ephesians. Children do not, they're not born with the sense of what it is you want them to do. Otherwise, they would be easy, but they're very difficult. They're difficult for a long time, and they go through phases of difficulty. And, and we are in the process of training children as we raise them, and we're helping to train them to know what we want them to do and what we don't want them to do. And that's why we have rewards and consequences and all of those things. And uh, people have made a lot of money writing books on how to be a good parent. Um, but I think what's evident here in the scripture is a truth that we all understand. That there, there is a process for learning what it is mom and dad want from me. What it is my parent is asking of me. What is it that pleases them? And when, when they do something they shouldn't do and we scold them, they learn that they shouldn't do that. When they do something that, that we, we want them to do, we praise them and we celebrate with them because they figured it out. They figured out what we wanted from them. And that's a really, that's a really gratifying experience, but it's one that we have to go through as children of God. We've got to sometimes remember and discern and learn what the right choice is, what God asks of us. Do not participate verse 11, in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. So again, he contrasts light and dark, and he says, the dark, it's idle, it's silly, it's useless, it's evil. 
it's fruitless. It does not bear fruit. It does not produce a good result. You're wasting your time. You're spinning your wheels. It's a futility. So don't participate in those deeds. Don't do those things. Why? Because they don't bear fruit. They don't, they don't give you anything. They don't, they don't bless anyone. So don't participate in them. And, and not, don't just not participate. Expose it. Now, again, does that mean that it is our call uh, by God to go around and denounce those that we feel are teaching falsehood? Well, sometimes, yes. Sometimes we do need to call out those things that we believe to be untrue or that go contrary to the Scripture. And we have religious fanatics and different groups that claim different things, and we have people that would uh, assail Christianity and paint it in a probably inaccurate light. And yes, we have to sometimes say, that is wrong, that is wrong, this is right. We sometimes have to do that. I think sometimes uh, we there are those who use this verse to say, well, this is our, uh, our authority to now go and expose everyone who's doing anything that we don't agree with. That would be carrying it too far. There are things that we will have differences on. There are times we will disagree. There is a time to accept the unity of our fellowship in spite of our differences, as Paul does elsewhere in his writings. And there is a time to call out. You know, we really misdefine the term false prophet or false teacher. Again, go to the context in Ephesus. He wasn't dealing with denominationalism. He wasn't dealing with doctrines of Christianity that differed on certain finer points. They were dealing with actual false teachers who denied the divinity of Christ, who denied the Holy Spirit, who denied the truth of the gospel. And he's saying, those people, you need to expose them. You need to call them out. They are charlatans. They are a falsehood. They are liars. They are deceivers. Yes, expose them. Don't participate with them. Don't go to that temple and engage in rampant fornication and say it's for the Lord. That's what they were, those are the things that were happening in Ephesus. And he's saying, don't do that. That's not producing good fruit. So don't just fall back and not participate with them. But you need to denounce them. You need to say that those people who are preaching that gospel and teaching that that those things are wrong. This is not the same as disagreeing on uh, whether creation was a literal seven days or whether or not we can worship in a certain style. Those are debates and conversations to have in a different setting, and maybe it's worthwhile to have. But the idea of exposing the darkness, shining the light upon the deceitful, goes back to what they were dealing with in Ephesus in the middle part of the first century where they had people saying, speaking for God and encouraging sin. And Paul says, those people you need to expose. Those people you need to denounce. Uh, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light, for everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason, it says, awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time. Oh, see, now we're going back here. We're going back to the beginning of the chapter where he says that no filthiness, no silly talk or coarse jesting. He's saying, you're, you're just engaged in silly chatter, useless, empty words, vain conversation. You need to make the most of your time. That's what chapter 5 is about. Being an imitator of God 
means having a sense of urgency about evangelism. It means that we need to act like we belong to God. We need to show the love of God to others because God showed it to us. We need to denounce those that, that teach falsehoods about the gospel. I'm not talking about doctrine, who, who denounce the truth of the gospel. We need to speak out to them, and we need to make the most of your time. He says, be careful how you walk. Don't be unwise. Don't be foolish. Make the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. Now, interesting verse here. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, this verse is often cited along with some others about why Christians shouldn't drink. Um, now, I, I live in Wisconsin, <laughs> That's a tall order asking people not to drink up here. The culture here enjoys a drink every now and then. Look, I believe people are free to do as they choose on this issue. I know there, there are good brothers and sisters who sincerely believe it is a sin for them to take a drink at, at all. And I encourage them to follow their conscience in that matter. And there are also good faithful brothers and sisters I know that don't mind having a drink every now and then. And... If that is their conscience that allows them to do that, then I will not judge them or denounce them for that because I don't find that to be contrary to Scripture. Um, to be What Paul is talking about here, and this was a part of the time and a part of the culture, that they would people would engage in overindulgence uh, of anything, but particularly of, of strong drink or, or, or physically uh, in, in different sins of the flesh. There was an overindulgence. And he says, don't do that. Why? It's dissipation. Don't lose your mind. Don't dilute your mind. Your mind and your intellect and your reason are important things that God created. Don't become drunk on wine, he says. Don't allow yourself to be weakened by this, this worldly thing. So now there, there are. I have heard people twist this up all manner of ways that say that. Well, if you look at the Greek, you know it's a past tense of the word drink. Therefore, if I have taken a drink of water, I am drunk with water because I drunk water. I think that's applying some um, Western English uh, linguistics to Greek, and it's not very well reasoned. This means to become intoxicated, okay? Otherwise, we would have Christians not using cough syrup. We can't, this is about, this is about, and you have to do a lot of revision, okay? To, to go back and, and like Jesus, who, who drank wine, he produced wine. Um, you have to do a lot of revisionist history to say it wasn't wine that he was drinking. It was wine. It had alcohol in it, so just stop. <laughs> Wine exists in the Bible. Christians drank. Um, Paul is encouraging people not to overindulge at the expense of their ability to live according to the gospel. Okay, he's look at the context. He's talking about walking in the light. He's talking about le leading a. Um, a stable and, and, and desirable lifestyle to God. He's talking about looking like what you claim to be. And what you claim to be would not allow itself to become distracted or weakened by something worldly. Should Christians drink? I think everybody should make a decision based on their conscience. But I think we should never overindulge, not in drink, not in anything. 
to the point that it takes our mind away from walking as children of the light. Look like God, act like what you claim to be, and if something gets in the way of that, you should put it aside. And in this case, he's saying you should watch out for alcohol because if you drink too much, it will cause you to make bad decisions. It will cause you to look different than what you claim to be, and that's not what we're going for. So please don't twist this up to add more rules to people because that's not what the Bible intended, and that's not what Paul intended when he wrote it. If you start twisting this one up, you got to twist up a whole lot else in Scripture, and you're just applying your current self into something that wasn't written to you. You're reading somebody else's mail. So you need to understand where they were at. And they were in a place where debauchery was the norm, where indulgence was the norm, and where there were those who tried to make that behavior a part of worship. And Paul says, no, it has nothing to do with it. That is man-made. That is man's idea. That is destructive to the integrity of the spirit. Return to living like what you've been called to, lives of quiet, peaceful purity, kindness, and love, and don't let these things distract you or detract from it. So again, I, you know, I, I'm not saying you should go out and party, and, and I'm not saying that you should never have a drink. You should follow your conscience. But what Paul is saying, he's not making a rule here about alcohol. He he is making a statement about preserving the clarity of your mind to do the will of God, okay? When we take that too far and try to make rules, and, and what we're really doing is allowing certain cultural movements of the 20th century to influence our doctrine, which go back before the temperance movement and see what Christians believed about this issue. It was, it was a little different. Some, some held those views, but, but it wasn't as widespread as it is today in certain groups of Christians. When we take that too far, we completely lost the thread on what God's trying to tell us through Paul here. So not only have you done a disservice to Paul, you've done a disservice to God, and you've done a disservice to yourself, and you've probably done a disservice to those who will hear you because they can't take you seriously now because saying that this verse here says you should never have a drop of alcohol does not pass the sniff test, okay? So let's just speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible's silent. I'm okay with that mantra if we'll stick to it. Don't be silent, don't speak where the Bible is silent, which is what I think some people try to do to enforce a cultural preference on scripture. Don't read yourself back into this, okay? God has given you a lot of freedom and liberty to make certain choices based on your conscience. And I think that the principles that Paul expresses elsewhere, particularly in the book of Romans and also in 1 Corinthians, lead me to conclude that this is an issue where I can give some grace to others and they can give some grace to me and we can have our points of view, okay? Um, he says, instead of that, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Um, this, this also is a verse that is often twisted around. Look, I grew up in the churches of Christ and the mainstream churches of Christ in the time I grew up. They don't worship, and in fact, our congregation today still does not worship with the use of instruments because there have been some in, in, in our history that felt, that that wasn't appropriate or it wasn't authorized by scripture. There's a very, in, in the history of the restoration movement, the churches of Christ, there became a very serious emphasis on 
doing just what the Bible tells us to do and not more, not adding to it, because we were afraid we would build our own rules and slip into the denominational path that those men had escaped from, like, like Presbyterianism and, and, and other denominations. They didn't want to look like that. They didn't want to be like that. And so to avoid building our own doctrines, we said, we're not going to do anything the Bible doesn't expressly tell us to do. And in doing that, we've probably built some of our own doctrines. It's just human nature. Um, I don't think the goal is necessarily to avoid building our own doctrines. It's to avoid enforcing what, our own doctrines on others and knowing the difference between what God has created and what we've created. So this verse was often cited as the reason why we don't use instruments. Now, I got to tell you, I prefer not worshiping with instruments. Uh, I think it, it's probably better. For me, it's better. I know great, wonderful Christian people that worship with instruments. And I don't, I, I might feel the Bible directs me a different way, but I don't believe the Bible directs me to judge or condemn them. Okay? I might disagree, and I might be able to talk to them about that disagreement. But nowhere in the Bible does it say that I have the right to tell them they're going to hell for it. Okay? So that's where I have to draw the line. But I will say, despite my own preferences, despite even what I might believe the Bible teaches on the matter, this verse right here is a really bad argument for acapella worship. It just is. Um, because I used to hear it growing up, and even when I be even though I believed it, and even, even when I was in, in it, I, I always thought that's just not a good argument, though. That's a really easy, easy argument to poke holes in. But listen to what he says. Um, and this often, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Well, there it is. Sing and make melody in your heart. Nothing in there about instruments, so we can't use instruments. Well, what does it mean to make melody in your heart? Would you say that's a literal thing or a figurative thing? I think everybody would agree it's a figurative thing. Making melody in your heart means that you're not just singing with your lips. It means you're singing with your inner being. You're allowing your soul to pour out in the words of your mouth to God in praise. Okay, so if making melody in your heart is figurative, then why does the word sing have to be literal? And excluding, why does the fact that it just says singing exclude instruments? Um, so I just want to say this. I like worshiping a cappella. Our congregation worships a cappella. We prefer it. We believe it to be the best uh, expression that we can offer uh, as people who are striving to follow after the scripture. Okay, But we do not cast aspersions on those who choose differently. We might disagree. We might work to not make that a part of what we do. But we will not place judgment and condemnation on others who do it. The scripture doesn't authorize me to. All that aside, if you believe acapella worship is the best way to worship and the scriptural way to worship, please find another argument besides Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 19. Because it's just a bad argument and it makes us look silly. And it probably does more harm than good. You can look at the history of the synagogues and how they worshipped a cappella. You can look at the early church and how they went for a long time worshipping without instruments. You can point all those things out. Um, but please don't try to read rules back in where they don't belong. Because if you go beyond chapter nine, chapter 5 verse uh, 19 and you, you spread this out and you broaden the context 
you see that he's talking about behaving in a way that's consistent with that which you profess. We profess to be Christians, so you should look like a Christian, which means you shouldn't look like the world. And he says that means you're not going to overindulge and let your mind get carried away with strong drink and becoming drunk and intoxicated. He said instead of doing that, instead of, instead of garbling your words and slurring your speech because you're drunk, you should have a holiness and you should instead of be filled with wine, be filled with the Spirit. That's a clear contrast in, in, in this passage. Not the wine, but rather the Spirit. And what does that mean? Verse 19 says that means you're going to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all the things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to, uh, to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. That means the reverence, the respect, the awe of Christ. It's not about the practice of music in worship, okay? It just isn't. I'm with you if you like acapella worship. I'm right there with you. I love it. But we we need to stop reading ourselves into the scripture, okay? Don't make arguments just because they're convenient. Try to try to make a, 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 a case that's correct. I don't like this as an argument for abstaining from alcohol, and I don't like this passage as an argument for abstaining from instrumental music. Abstaining from alcohol, absolutely fine. Probably a, a, a smart thing to do for some people. Abstaining from instrumental music, hey, um, that may be what you feel is the most pleasing way to worship the Lord. My heart's with you. Um, but do not try to twist these words by acting like Paul wrote them to a church in 2021. Remember, they were written to a church in Ephesus, and they were dealing with being pulled from a focused uh, walk with God into worldliness, and he's saying, don't turn to worldliness, turn to God. And that means that you will act different, you will make different choices, and you will speak to one another differently. Don't make it more than it is. It's a wonderful, wonderful passage. And it informs us in how we're to treat one another and how we are to lead lives filled with the Spirit, not filled with worldly things. If that doesn't mean as much to you in that context as it does as an argument against instrumental music, then you're missing the point. It should mean absolutely more. I think it cheapens Paul's words to say he was just talking about the, the method of worship, music and worship. No, he was talking about something much bigger. Don't cheapen those words. Make your arguments elsewhere, but leave Paul alone because what he's talking about is walking like you talk, being children of light, not deceivers in the darkness. Uh, and it's okay. It's okay to leave it there. It's okay to, to, to be okay with that, all right? Now, we've covered a couple, we've covered a couple of controversial topics already, um, and, and I'm sure some of you are frustrated and some of you are very happy with the things I've said. That's okay. Um, we're, we're all children of God and we can all love each other. Um, the, you know, we've covered the alcohol, we've covered the instruments. Well, we're about to get into some passages that are, are, are a bit of a struggle, particularly in modern times. They're a bit of a struggle because they deal with, they deal with men and women and they deal with the roles that men and women have. And so we're going to look at that next time and we're going to dig a little deeper on that and see if we can't, again, reading someone else's mail, get back to the heart of what Paul is talking about and then how does that apply to us, okay? So that'll be next time. 
Thank you so much for being a part of this study, and we hope you'll continue in this study, and we hope that you'll continue to find all of our material beneficial to you. We hope that God blesses you the rest of your day. We'll see you next time.